We are starting a brand new series we're very excited about. It is called Citizen Shift. Citizen Shift. And I'm just going to kind of forewarn you up front that we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages of Scripture. I'm not just going to do an exposition of one today. I'm going to be taking you through kind of a Bible study and showing you a lot of different passages of Scripture. So so get your seatbelts on, okay? And you can try to follow with me, and I hope that you will as best as you can. I will have to kind of move fast because I've got a lot of Scripture today. So it'll also be up on the screen. Maybe you can write some notes down and go study some of this for yourself. We urge you to do that. Study the Word of God. And so we're going to be talking about citizen shift, and that will be a three-week series. It will lead us up to the Sunday right before the national election here that we are are about to experience. And then coming out of that, the following Sunday, we're going to be doing a series called Comfort in Chaos. You think that might be some good timing, right? Comfort in Chaos. And we're going to be taking a look then at just breaking down the 23rd Psalm and understanding how God walks with us through difficult times in our life. And so I'm excited, though, about this series, Citizenship. Well, can I start by asking you guys out a question and trust that you will shoot straight with me. Will you do that? Amen? You'll tell me the truth, right? You're in God's house. You know you're in God's house, right? So, all right. So here's a question. Have you gotten to a place lately where you would say that you are just totally just burned out and weary with politics right now? Is that you? Would you raise your hand? Okay. I mean, it just can be kind of overwhelming, right? And you just kind of, man, every service, hands went up fast. Just people are kind of tired of that. They're kind of just, it just, it just kind of happens during election season. People kind of get weary of it. Some of you may just be weary of Washington right now, right? And you're just kind of beaten down by that. How many of you would even say this? And this is very common, okay? There's no shame in this this morning. I want you to be honest and transparent. How many of you would say you even have been kind of worried about things? Would you raise your hands? It's okay to raise your hands, all right? You've kind of been worried about how things are, you know, the way just, and, 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 you know, whether you're worried or not, a lot of people maybe are fearful because of change, and they don't like change very much, and change is coming, changes are happening, but a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people feel uh, just kind of discouraged. I, I mean, I talk to so many folks, and I hear it uh, over and over again, they feel discouraged. There's kind of a darkness, kind of a dark cloud that just kind of a, accompanies this season at certain times, right? And uh, and I, I was even reading this article that was talking about millennials, the generation behind me, right? The millennials, there's a word that is coming up quite frequently. Many of them feel this way. They kind of feel disillusioned. Disillusioned. I had lunch with my son on Friday. My son's 20 years old, and we went to lunch. He was off, and I was off on Friday, so we went together, had lunch, and I've just been feeling like I needed to talk to him about this because this is my son's first uh, election that he gets to vote in, presidential election. And I'm just, I'm just sitting there with Luke. We're, we're sitting there in the restaurant. I said, I want to talk to you about this and just kind of see how you're feeling about things. And I just said, Luke, I just want you to know this. Man, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not that I didn't. I'm sorry that this is your first election. I'm sorry that this is kind of the experience that a lot of people feel right now is, you know, and and this, believe me, this is not about any trying to sway you towards any political affiliation. I don't care about that. That's not my job. All right. But it is this. I want to point people to Jesus. I want you to understand some things about that today. But I just said, Luke, I'm sorry you feel that way. You need to understand it's important that you engage in culture and that you, that you, you know, don't let this burn you out to where you're saying, I'm never going to participate in this process. There are people who have paid a very high price for us to have a voice. Amen, right? And regardless of what your voice may be there. And, uh, but a lot of people feel that way. Some of you, I know this personally, some of you have had strained friendships uh, because of political divisiveness. 
when you start talking about politics, right, it gets kind of, it can get divisive really quickly and very strong opinions. And, and, and I'm not much for, I'm not much into social media. I know some of you are. That's fine. Most of you are probably. That's just not my scene. I don't have a problem with it. But I've heard from many of you that said, man, like it's, it's like a jungle on Facebook right now. Just everybody says what they want to say and it kind of gets like that. And uh, I have uh, been participating by watching some of the presidential debates and, and, and the, the one this uh, past week, you know, as I watched the first two, as I, I wondered if maybe the, the beginning music, kind of in my warped sense of humor, you'll see this, at the beginning of the debate, if the music shouldn't have been like this when the candidates were coming out, maybe like this. Welcome to the jungle, right? It's like a brawl about to be thrown down. That's what it felt like, right? It's what it feels like. They won't even shake hands. They won't look at each other. All right? And, uh, all right, I, I don't know. I've never started a message with Guns and Roses. I'm just saying that right now. Can you tell I'm a, can you tell I'm a Gen Xer? I'm a Gen Xer. That's my music that I grew up with. But that's what it feels like. All right, man, I, that's the biggest amen I've ever gotten, Guns and Roses. It feels like that. It almost feels like a wrestling match, Right? It feels that feeling of just that way, and that's how people feel, right? By the way, my wife, Hope, she was in the last service. She said she has a solution that will fix the Dallas Cowboys quarterback controversy as well as what's happening with the presidency of the United States. She said, and and, and when Hope says this, I listen. I am trained. Can you see? All right? And uh, what she says is right here. She says, says, Dak Prescott needs to keep being the, the quarterback you know, he needs to be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Tony needs to retire and run for president, okay? And, and she said, I'll save it right there. And I said, I'll vote for Tony, right? I'll vote for Tony. And if not Tony, how about some of you old-timers? How about Roger Staubach? That's what I'm talking about right there. I'd vote for Roger in a heartbeat, right? All right? So uh, it's just, you know, election season in America, it does. It just gets really tacky. It gets really just negative, and it's easy to get cynical during this time. Every service, people raise their hands and say, I just feel that weight right now. I feel the heaviness of it. I mean, let's be honest. We probably could walk across the hallway and find more maturity uh, in the preschool department than what we're seeing currently. In adults, I mean, it's, it's, there's no doubt with the mudslinging and one scandal that's emerged and it's like they tattletale on each other, right? I mean, it it's almost sounds a little preschool, but um, it's easy to get weary. It's easy to get tired in the midst of all that and get worried. Some are really worried. I talked to a lot of folks. I mean, I feel that heaviness. I was at a football game Friday night and even the crowd that night seemed kind of subdued, and I was like, this is weird. What's going on? I mean, they're tr- people are trying to figure that out right now, and I-, I think it's just kind of an overall cloud that kind of hangs over people right now. And they might even be a tad bit discouraged or just fretful, right? We worry about who's going who's gonna to be leading our, our great nation, and it, make, it can make us anxious. Either way, right, it makes us anxious. We wonder what will happen in the America that we love. We wonder what will happen, and we get, we get bent out of shape a little bit. Why? And I would even say this. Why? Because we love our country. Amen? Don't you love America? We love our country. You're patriotic. You love, uh, you love, and I love being a part of this great country, and we get concerned for good reasons, especially when you look at kind of all that's happened, I mean, gosh, in the last five or six years or however many years. I mean, you can look back and see there just seems to be Seems to be a season of unrest, even this year with the things that happen. 
It's heartbreaking that there's so much racial division still uh, today, right? That there's still hatred that's there, and there's still that kind of racial division. It's been all, you know, it's been something that that many uh, see today. Or you see that not only that kind of divisiveness, you see, uh, you know, maybe it's just a political unrest and the divisiveness there. Or you see violence and the terrorism that that you know is not anything new to us, but it manifests itself in different kinds of ways. You hear about ISIS, or if it's not that, then it's on whatever's on the media is portraying Zika, or you know what I mean? You know, pick, your, pick your acronym, or whatever. It's one of these different kinds of things that it just, and then the, then the plummeting morality, right? We live in a, in a society today, we can't even today in our culture agree upon, upon what a family is, or what, what a marriage is. There's divisiveness there when it comes to what is moral and what is immoral, I mean, there's, there's just so much of that. And these are definitely, in this season of unrest, definitely trying days. People feel it. Definitely trying days we're going through. A lot of division, layer upon layer. It's enough to leave a person just really fearful about our future in our country. But I want you to know that the Apostle Paul was teaching a young pastor named Timothy And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, again, we're going to look at a bunch of scriptures today. I want you to see that he was was getting this group of people ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And this was about 2,000 years ago. So this still speaks to us today. And even if not prophetic, when we look at culture today, we see this. Paul says to Timothy, and Paul is imprisoned, right, for the gospel of Jesus when he writes this. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very, what does it say, church? Very difficult times. There will be difficult times. For people will love only themselves. There's going to be great narcissism is what he's saying. Or they will love, and they will love their money. So there's also going to be great materialism, right? They will be boastful. There's going to be this kind of egotistical kind of way of living, a selfish way of living. Boastful and proud, scoffing at God. That's a blasphemous, right? Blasphemy. Disobedient to their parents, there's rebellion. And even ungrateful, that's a sense of entitlement. Do we live in an entitled culture? We do, don't we? Okay, I mean, so are you feeling like, are you feeling this? Are you, are you feeling that, whoa, this is a description, isn't it? They will consider nothing sacred, not life, not marriage. I mean, I mean, this is what Paul is saying. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends. Be reckless. Be puffed up with pride. And love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious if it will get votes. But they will reject the power that could make them godly. They'll reject that. Stay away from people like that. Now, he's not saying we don't love people that are broken and that have sin or that he's not saying, he's saying, be careful who you 
affiliate yourself with. Be careful who you associate with. If you skip to verse 8 in the second part, they have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. He's very descriptive here. But now I want you to notice where he starts heading in verse 9. And remember, he's, he's trying to teach this young pastor how to teach others. He says, listen, Timothy, they will, they will be this way. But look at what he says. He's talking about even religious leaders that get into the church and who, who you know, falsely teach. And who, I mean, he says, but they won't get away with this for long. What he's saying is you have to understand that God is on the throne. They won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognize, he says, what fools they are. In other words, as we just sang a few moments ago, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is coming a day where God will expose the hypocrisy. God will expose the motives. God will expose these things. When you start reading through this passage, it sounds really familiar, doesn't it? You feel that when you look at our culture. And I want you to know this, that when you feel that, you you can start feeling discouraged. You can start feeling worried and fearful. But I want to, in this series, give you just a message of hope. Could you use a little bit of hope today? Amen? I have a little hope. I'm married to a woman named Hope, but that's not what I'm talking about. You can't have her. But I'm talking about a hope that is found in this truth that is in the gospel of Jesus. We have an unchanging truth that is steadfast in God's Word, right? In the pages of God's Word with a knowledge of this. And this is what I'm wanting to begin to give you if you don't already have this, a knowledge of understanding that God is at work. He is at work and He has been working in many different ways all throughout history. And the simple truth is this, is that when you understand the truth about what is called the sovereignty or the sovereign hand of God, the authoritative sovereign hand of God, it matters less about who occupies the White House and what matters most is understanding the truth about the one who occupies the throne of heaven. That is what matters most. What really matters is to understand that our Heavenly Father, and I want us to understand this as I show you in the Scripture, is that He is over, our Heavenly Father is over all of the nations. He uses the nations, this nation and all nations, to accomplish His perfect will. He uses this. Do you realize this? I want you to hear this, church. Do you understand there is not anything or anybody that can stop God's perfect will from being achieved, from being accomplished? And so in light of this truth, as a believer, like you and like me, we can come to see politics through a different lens, you look through a different lens, just, just you know, uh, an understanding that, that the world is not just being directed through the actions of voters. The world is not just being directed through the act of a political party or a political candidate. But as a believer, you, when you have a citizen shift and you understand where your citizenship really lies first and foremost, you can actually be at peace. 
You can actually rest in knowing that God is sovereignly working everything together for his coming kingdom. That's what God is doing. Folks, he can't be stopped. God cannot be stopped. His will can't be thwarted by anyone or anything. In fact, when you look in the Bible, what you find is that God has always managed those who are in places of authority. He's managed them. I want you to see this. I'll show you this today. You'll find an example, one right after another. Of You'll never find this example of God trying to figure out what he's going to do about a political person who is in a place of power. God's not wringing his hands up in heaven going, what are we going to do, angels, about this? What are we going to do about this election? Or what are we going to do about this king or this president or this congressman? God's not wringing his hands in fear, wondering what he's going to do. When you get that, you have a citizen shift. Now, yes, we are, we are residents and citizens of this great nation that we are blessed to get to live in. And we are thankful for that. Amen. We're thankful that we get to be Americans. Thankful for that opportunity that we have that so many do not have all around the world. The freedom that we have to have a voice. That's, that's incredible. That's a gift of God. But you need to understand that when we have a citizen shift, we understand that as a believer, if you are one, your citizenship first is in heaven. I want to show you what the Apostle Paul, again, wrote to a group of Christians who were, who were going through a difficult time. Paul is in prison while he's writing this. The Roman government is in control. They are persecuting him. And Paul is trying to teach these believers about joy. He says, I want to teach you how to be joyful, how to have peace. He's in prison while he writes this. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, above all, you must live as, what does it say, church? Citizens of heaven. Live as, right now. This is present tense. This isn't one day just when you die and go to heaven, right? This is, you are living as we speak now as a citizen of heaven. And as you do so, you are conducting yourselves, he says, in a manner worthy of the good news about Jesus Christ. If you flip a few pages and you go to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to say this. Now, remember, he's writing about how they can have joy, how they can be at peace, how they can know that things are going to be okay. Look at what he says, again, writing from prison. We are, but we are, what does he say? Verse 20, citizens of heaven. Right now, you're a citizen of heaven. That's where your citizenship is found. We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Can I get an amen there, right? Amen. Using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. He is a sovereign God. First and foremost, we are citizens of heaven. Secondary, we are citizens, most of us here, right, of the United States of America. 
But when we're fearful, we need a citizen shift of understanding primarily who's in control. So let's dig in a little more. I want you to envision this. Think about this, that it's post-Civil War United States. Your family for several generations has known nothing but slavery. You have been enslaved for generation after generation. Your entire life being under this yoke of bondage. Maybe you've been one there that's in the hot place in the south there, picking cotton under the hot sun, working the fields of a plantation, working for a slave master there, right? And it's all you've ever known. Your generations have grown up in this. Then all of a sudden, you hear something uh, about something that is called the Emancipation Proclamation that declares that you and your family are no longer slaves. You are now free to go. And it's incredible news that you are very happy about. But yet at the same time, you're also perhaps fearful. You're perhaps fearful of knowing that where am I going to go now? What am I going to do next? It's scary because you don't have any possessions. You don't have any land. There's no, you don't have a dime to your name. You, you're, you're, you're struggling with that. You're happy, but you're also fearful for the change that's coming. Now imagine to yourself if someone in your family comes and says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to our slave master, and we're going to go to him up in his plantation, and we are going to ask him for everything that we need to provide for us. You'd be like, are you kidding me? We can't, we can't ask him that. He's not going to do anything for us there. To your amazement, what you end up finding out is that he is compelled to give you anything that you request. You, you ask for wagons and livestock uh, and, and, and some of your basic needs. You're going to need to get started again. And he says, okay. And then you decide just to take a risk and even say, you know what? We even need some money. Or how about some of the jewelry or some of the silver that you have? We're going to need some of those things. And you're thinking he's going to say no, but he says yes to that too. And you're blown away by this. He says, take whatever you need. In fact, take whatever you want. Now, that sounds like a bizarre scenario, doesn't it? Has anything like that ever really happened? Well, when you look in the Bible, you look at the nation of Israel. Do you know their story? You know that as Joseph Joseph in the sovereign hand of God placed Joseph in this place of leadership in Egypt, we understand that as, as pharaohs came about, that Joseph and Israel was no longer looked upon favorably. And then they became slaves by the Egyptians. For over 400 years, they were treated cruelly. Generation after generation, it's all they ever knew. They were cruelly beaten. Their children were slaughtered often by... The Egyptians. It was a terrible time in the nation of Israel where they were under this great, bo- this great uh, yoke of and bondage of slavery. And then God, through Moses, declared another emancipation proclamation, right? When he was on Mount Sinai, while Moses is tending to sheep, he's there tending to sheep, he's been driven out of Egypt. Also how God sovereignly put Moses in this place of leadership, but then he was driven out and exiled into the desert where he's now 80 years old and he's been tending sheep for 40 years. He's ready to retire, right? And God speaks to him through the burning bush experience in Exodus chapter 3 verse 9. This is what it says. God says, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, he's talking to Moses, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. 
you must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Moses, as you know the story goes on, he has an argument with God. He says, not me. I mean, God, I, I, I'm slow of speech. I stutter. I stutter. You know, he's having trouble getting the words out. God, you can't use anyone like me. I'm about to retire, God. Don't use me. God, find somebody else to do this, right? And, and by the way, why would Pharaoh, why would he in any way ever listen to me? And God says, I'll tell you why he will listen, because I am. That's what he says. I am God. Pharaoh is not. You need to understand that Pharaoh was viewed as a god at this time. He says, I am the God. I am God, the only God. Pharaoh is not, and I am with you when you go. Verse 19, he goes on and he says, God says, but I know, God is all-knowing, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless... Now watch, a mighty hand forces him. Who do you think he's talking about here? So God says this, So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go. You know that the plagues came about. Moses was used by God to bring about these plagues. And now I want you to look at verse 21. And I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you. They will give you gifts when you go so you will not leave empty-handed. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and fine clothing from her Egyptian neighbors. Ladies, it was shopping day, right? They're going out. And, and from the foreign women in their houses. Now watch this. You will dress your sons and daughters with these fine articles of clothing, stripping the Egyptians of their wealth. God's like this. I'm not just going to give you some tools just to go out into the desert and piddle around. I'm not just giving you a few donkeys or a few camels. I'm not just, I, I'm not just giving you a few of those kinds of things. No, I'm going to strip them of their wealth. Why? Because what God is showing, he is showing I am in charge. I'm the one that's in charge, not some earthly king. I'm the one that gives, God is saying, and I am the one that takes. I am the one that blesses a nation, and I am the one that curses a nation. This is what he's showing. Did you notice the passage says, God says, I will cause. I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably upon you, and they will give you gifts. God, what he does is he works in the hearts of people. He softens the hearts of the oppressors towards the oppressed. Did this happen because Moses and his posse got together and developed this incredible political campaign? Did it happen because Moses and the boys got together with their strategies, right, coming against Pharaoh, who was over all of this, and, and, and you know, did it happen because Moses had mad persuasive skills? I think what we know is the answer to that is no, that's not the reason. In fact, when we look at Moses, he was a fearful, stuttering, slow of speech shepherd in Sinai that didn't even want to be there to begin with. God says, I'm still going to work. I still can work through you. What I want us to see is that God is the one that can move hearts, manage hearts, 
manage the direction of any woman or any man for his purposes. That is how God works. I think that we as the people of God need to be reminded of this today. I needed this reminder as I started studying this for myself, understanding this in this time of political unrest or in the season of unrest, we understand we can fall into this common kind of way of thinking that it's the president of the United States or it's a dictator, or it's a king, or it's a person who's in this kind of power that actually uh, that they are over the nation or leads the nation. We often hear that whenever the president of the United States is described. Why? Because we're a superpower as a nation. And because there is so much power that's there, that person who occupies that office is often described as the most powerful person in the world. That's how they're often described. And therefore, a lot of times we, we kind of think that way and we think that they are the ones that, that totally direct the course of a nation. But what we understand is this, is that our sovereign God is, is on the throne. We can look at things with a, with a different kind of lens than the way the rest of the world looks at things. We can actually be at peace. Write this down. Here's something good if you're taking notes. Write this down. We can actually be at peace because we believe that God is over all the nations and their leaders. And I want to show you this. Despite what many think, Washington doesn't call the shots. It may seem that way. Despite what many think, Congress doesn't direct the ultimate future. Despite what we may think, the Supreme Court doesn't dictate what is morally right and morally wrong because there are things that never change. Now, they may for a season say, this is what's going to happen, and they are in places of leadership, yes, but I want to show you something, all right? The Bible is full of examples of the sovereign hand of God using and, and, and directing the hearts of those who are in places of leadership. Proverbs chapter 21 Solomon, who was the, this great king at the time, the richest, the wisest. Look at what he writes. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by whom? The Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. Solomon understands this. Another translation says, the king's heart is in the hand of of the Lord. In other words, it's as casually as a farmer would dig a trench so that the stream, the water would go to his fields for his purposes. That's what he's comparing this to, right? He's saying the king's heart is in the hand of our God. He did this in Egypt. He did this. Let me show you a few others just very quickly. He did this in Persia. Cyrus, who was king of Persia. Uh, here's what we know about this guy. He had absolute power at the time. The Persians were the world power. They were the superpower at this time. He didn't have, uh, this king did not have checks and balances in place like we have today. There was no accountability. He needed the approval of nobody. If he said, you die, you die. If he said, you live, you live. This is how he worked. When he spoke, it happened. And I want you to see what the book of Ezra has to say about this, okay? How God worked in Cyrus's heart. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. By the way, do you know what had happened? Let me just explain this to you. Israel, who had been a great nation, they, their, they were brought to their knees because they turned away from God. 
And I think we need to hear that today. They were brought to their knees. God allowed judgment to come upon their nation because they, they chased after other gods. They committed adultery, so to speak, with other gods is the way it's described. And Jeremiah describes it that way, okay? They chased after other gods. They, they wanted, instead of wanting God, in fact, what you'll find is they wanted a king. They said, give us a king. We want Saul. And God said, here's Saul. I'll give you a king. And that's what happened, okay? And so they started chasing after other gods. And, and so judgment came upon their nation. They were exiled out. Many of them were murdered and killed. They were conquered by these nations, okay? Now, I want you to see this. So the temple of God is destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are destroyed and knocked down. But look at what God does through Cyrus, In this first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred, that's God, stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom, which was a world kingdom at the time. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. By the way, you should know Cyrus was not a follower of God. Cyrus did not love God. Cyrus was, a, was an evil king, right? He didn't, but, but God didn't allow that to stop his purposes. God uses whomever he wants in his sovereign way to fulfill his powerful purpose. The purposes of God cannot be stopped. He goes on and he says this. Now listen, this is fascinating to me. Any of you, Cyrus says, who are his people, that's Israel... Any of you, this is the proclamation, who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple, this place of worship for the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And now watch this. And may your God be with you. That's interesting, right? Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, he's blessing them out, right? Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute towards their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for their journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Once again, God is like this. I'll even have your enemies foot the bill for this, for God's people. How about Nebuchadnezzar? You heard about this guy? If you've ever participated or watched VeggieTales, you know him as King Nebi, right? King Nebi, who wanted the bunny, right? But Nebuchadnezzar was this king of Babylon, King Nebi. He, he was cruel. He enslaved thousands upon thousands and participated in the murder of so many people. He was a terrible, evil, vile king. I wish I had time to flesh out this, so, this whole story, but what you know, you can look it up for yourself. He builds this 90-foot uh, statue, and it's kind of an in, the, in the image of himself, and he requires everyone to bow down before and worship this, and if you do not, then you will be killed, he says. That's how egotistical, just a maniacal kind of guy he was, and, and just so power-hungry. There were, there were some young Jewish men, you know, Daniel, and then again, VeggieTales, Rack, Shack, and Benny, right? Trinity knows, right? And, and that's my daughter. And, 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 you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We know that they would not bow down. They wouldn't do that. And, and so at that point where they stood their ground, he is 
furious. And he takes them and he throws them in the fiery furnace. And then he looks in the fiery furnace and what does he see? He, he cries out and he says, there's, look, there's, there's still, they're not burning up. And there's one who's like the son of God who is walking with them in that fire. That's the story, right? That's the account of this. He's with them. And what does he do? He bows down and worships the God of heavens. In other places, in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's story, he was so filled with pride and ego. One time he was walking around on the roof of his palace, admiring himself in just this, just this total narcissism and, and admiring his power. And Daniel had prophesied to him that God was going to humble him. In Daniel, it says this in verse 29, 12 months, he says, chapter 4, verse 29, 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of a royal palace in Babylon. As Nebuchadnezzar looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon, right? By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven and is going to say, I don't think so. (laughs) Look at what, while these words are in his mouth, O King Nebuchadnezzar, This message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. Just like that. Just like that. At that moment, God struck him down in judgment and humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't kill him, but he humbled him. And the scripture tells us that he fell to the ground in insanity. And he started acting like a wild animal. This went on for a seven-year period where he was on the out. I mean, you read the account. It's incredible to watch this. Now watch this. He ends up being humbled by God. And now this cruel, godless king, after he's humbled by God, the sovereign God, finally comes back to his senses. And these are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. After this time had passed... I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High. He's now humbled. He's worshipping the Most High God, Yahweh, and honored the one who lives forever. Listen to what he's saying now. His rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal is what he's saying. All the people of the earth, including me, is what he's saying, are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can, what does it say, church? Stop him. You can't stop him. He is the sovereign God. No one can stop his purposes, right? I think Nebi had a citizen shift. Do you think so? God humbled him in this place. He did restore him to leadership, but God gave him a good spanking for his pride and his ego. Here's another one. What about Artaxerxes of Persia? King of Persia. We don't have time to get into this one, but look that one up. We've done the series uh, where we talked about the wall of Jerusalem, right? And, And what does God do? God causes this pagan king to also give Nehemiah anything he needed and wanted to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Read the story for yourself. How about this one in the New Testament? Pilate. 
the governor over Judea who was put in place by Caesar of the Romans, Pilate, as Jesus has been uh, falsely accused, as Jesus is standing before Pilate and, and, and is being silent before Pilate right before the crucifixion of Jesus, he says to Jesus, Jesus, do you not understand? You'd better answer me. You answer me, Jesus. Don't you realize I have the power to set you free or to crucify you, Jesus? And Jesus' response in John chapter 19, verse 11, Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. And then Jesus dropped the mic and walked off, right? (laughs) Because he's saying, you have no power. If it were not given to you, I'm the one that is in. And then we know Jesus has said, no one took his life. Jesus gave it. He gave it. He says this over and over. How about Herod Agrippa, the great king of Israel? During this time of Jesus, he started getting too big, you know, for his britches. That's what we say it in our family. And he's filled with ego and pride. And when people started comparing him to a God, look at Acts chapter 12, verse 22. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, it's the voice of a God, not a man. And Herod's eating it up, right? It's fueling his ego. Instantly... An angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was, now this will bless you right before you go eat lunch. So he was consumed with worms and died. That's a terrible way to go, right? I'm just wanting you to see this pattern. God will not share his glory with anyone. Because there is no one who is worthy except him. He is the only one. And I could keep going, keep showing you example after example after example. That God places people and allows people in places of authority. And and it can't stop his purposes. Listen to this passage, what Daniel wrote. Daniel wrote in chapter 2 verse 19. Then Daniel, it speaks of him, praise the God of heaven. Daniel would also not yield to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he ends up being placed in this great place of leadership. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. I want you to read the next part with me out loud. Say it with me. He does what? He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He's in control, church. Are you hearing all of this today? He's not worried. He's not fretting. He's not weary with all of this. As he's always removed and put people in places of leadership, kings and kingdoms have come and have gone. How has God always worked in all of this in the past? And how will he work in this in the future? We cannot stop our God. His purposes are unstoppable. He's driving everything, everything. And you've got to understand this, all right? He's driving everything to his ultimate and glorious return where he will set up his kingdom once and for all, for all eternity. That is what he is most concerned about, right? 
When you understand his power, when you understand where history is going, when you understand the direction, as believers, we can pray this prayer like King Jehoshaphat prayed in Second Chronicles. He was a king over Judah, and he wrote this, or he said this, O Lord God of our ancestors, this is our prayer. You are alone. You are the God who is in heaven. You are the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. Look at the next part. No one can stand against you. No one can. Now, don't get me wrong. A nation is blessed when it enjoys the leadership of godly leaders. Proverbs talks about that. We should hope for that. We should pray for that. But the point is, is that even if a nation does not have a godly leader, if God wants something done for his purpose, no godless man, no godless woman can stop him because he is the sovereign king. He is in control. He's in charge. He directs what happens. Now, I don't know about you, but that is comforting news to me. Because I know that God is really ultimately in control. No matter what your political affiliation is, we understand that God is ultimately in control. Do we really think, and I say this with respect, I don't say this to stir anything up here, do we really think that God can't handle a Hillary Clinton or a Donald Trump? If he can handle either one of them or all of these, he can handle either one of them is what I'm saying. He can handle either one. Again, I'm not trying to be political and telling you to pick anybody. I'm not. I'm just saying he can handle it. He's not worried, right? He's not worried and wringing his hands about November 8th, right? Uh, he's not worried about the actions of elephants and donkeys. What you find is that in the book of Revelation, all of heaven bows down to a lamb. And his name is Jesus. That's what you find. So what does it mean for you? You let others be anxious. Not you as the people of God. Let others pledge their solitary allegiance to a political party and political figureheads, which, by the way, are always changing their values. Their values are constantly changing because it's about winning an election and the favor of man. Rather than steadfast values which are about what is pleasing to God. So let others pledge that allegiance. I'm not saying don't get involved. Absolutely, you'll hear me say get involved. But here's what we're saying is that we don't have to be worried. We don't have to, at every new scandal that emerges, either party, right? We don't have to. God's people have nothing to fear or be worried about because we know that God is sovereignly in control. We know we have a citizenship. Here's what we as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. You know you're a son and a daughter of the King of Kings, right? That's what you are if you're in Jesus Christ. So as temporary citizens of this great country that we get to live in right now, as temporary citizens, here's what we do. We get informed. We get informed. We understand the culture. We understand the issues. We think deeply about the issues. We don't just say that we're going to vote a certain way because it's just a, pol a, a political party, and that's the only reason. You think deeply about those things, right? We pay attention to the culture. We exercise our right to vote 
because it's been paid for by, by blood, by many men and women who gave their lives for our freedom to actually get a say in what our government looks like. You exercise your right to vote. We pay our taxes like Jesus said that we should. Right? We, we, we engage in civics within our community. We're involved in the community. And, and we're not going to be abrasive like others are. We need to be light in the middle of darkness is what we need to be like. Some of you may even get involved in a political campaign of someone you really believe in that has great values. I say go for that. That's great. But be sure that your allegiance first is to heaven and not just a political party. Or just even to our country. And we have a great country. Our citizenship is in heaven. I would even suggest this. Some of you, not me, but some of you, God may call you to even run for political office. And I think that is a great thing to do. Because once again, we need godly people who are willing to be light in the middle of darkness. Not wielding power, but as servants public servants, right? Uh, You realize this. I just want you to see you have a voice. Use your voice. Speak your voice. You know, use your voice, but don't. Here's what we don't do. We don't freak out. We don't freak out. We don't get hateful. We don't lose our testimony for Christ engaging in a Facebook battle. That happens a lot, doesn't it? It's ugly. We don't get sucked into the political venom and vitriol that so commonly accompanies politics of our day. We don't, we don't wage war the way the world wages war. Jesus says that's not, and Paul says that's not how we're to do things. We stay above the fray. We don't fight like the world fights. Our response is different than the world's even in politics because we know that no matter whom or who is in the Oval Office, Jesus Christ is still on the throne in heaven. And we rest in that. If you understand your Bible and you understand how God has worked throughout history, even through bad leaders Oftentimes, God would use bad leaders to bring his people to a place of brokenness. That's what he does. Look at your Bible. Read it. You'll also find this, that if you know anything about prophecy going forward, we need to understand this, church. Please hear me this. This isn't the scariest or anything. We can rest in Jesus. You need to understand politically It's going to get worse before it gets better. Look at your Bibles. It will happen. And you need to determine who your allegiance is going to be with. Is it going to be with a political party? Or is your citizenship going to be in heaven? But Jesus Christ, when it gets at its worst, Jesus Christ, the scripture says, will return on his great white horse And set up his kingdom and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Amen. That's where we rest. That's where we rest. Here's your final takeaway. We trust this this, that our God is sovereignly working all things together for the good of those who love him. And who are called according to his purposes. So you rest in that. You don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be troubled. 
I love this country just like you do. I'm thankful for this, that I'm a citizen of the United States of America. Amen, right? I'm thankful for that. But you know what I'm even more thankful for? That because of Jesus, I am a citizen of heaven. And that is first and foremost where my allegiance lies. So what do we do in the meantime? You walk out of here, and I'm telling you, church, you can do this. We choose God's peace. Let's be different. Let's don't be anxious. Let's be different. Let's be at peace. Let's be light and darkness right now. Let's know that Jesus is in control, right? Here's what you also do. Vote your values. Now, this is not where I come in and tell you how to vote. I don't do that. I don't think that's my place. But I do urge you to vote your values. And, and how do you determine what our values are? Not, not my opinion. My opinion's pointless to you. What does this say? What does this say? We have a, a website that is a good website. I'll just give it to you. You can go kind of look at it for yourself. Be an informed voter. Don't just go blindly in. Be an informed voter. Freevotersguide.com. You can go there and you can kind of start understanding what candidates believe. And this, I'm not trying to sway you towards any party. I hope you're hearing that. But I think you should be and I should be an informed voter to understand who I'm hiring, right? And we are hiring them. We should know who we're hiring. And so inform yourself. And here's the final thing that we're going to do right now. We pray. And I want to encourage you to pray every day up to the election. We pray daily for our country and for our leaders. We want to do that right now. Paul, the last scripture I want to share with you. The Apostle Paul, he's telling Timothy, this is how I want you to lead my church, Timothy. Lead the church I planted this way. He's going to urge him to do this. This last passage of scripture, he says, Timothy, in chapter 2, verse 1, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people, all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. Give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This, this kind of prayer, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants, what does he want? Everyone to be saved. Everyone to know Jesus and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Now look, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Everyone. So here's how we're going to end today. We're going to pray for our leaders in our nation. I want to invite you just to stand with me right now. And let's just bow our hearts before our sovereign God right now. He tells us, pray for your leaders no matter who they are, whether you like them or not. And I like them or not, I'm still commanded and called by God to pray. So we pray. And we know that God is sovereignly at work. Just begin to pray for our country right now. Pray for God's purposes to be achieved and fulfilled. What is his main purpose is that 
all would know that he is a savior and that he is coming back. Pray for just our country that is so divided that there would be healing that would begin to happen in the midst of this divisiveness. Can we just as a church just humble ourselves before our God, pray before Him, seeking His face, repenting of our sins as the church, not looking at everyone else, but just saying, God, we've been wrong. We humbly bow ourselves before You. Pray that healing would happen where there is hatred among the races. The church of Jesus Christ should be facilitating peace. Pray that we would be Christ's representatives of peace in a culture that is filled with chaos and hate. Pray for the return of Jesus Christ and that the church, that's us, that we would be strong and resolved as we wait for him. Not passively, but engaging the culture, being light and darkness, being salt as we're called to. Pray for, yes, our leaders. Pray for our president. Pray for our Congress. Pray that they would humble themselves before our God. Pray for our nation to turn to Christ. What about you? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? calls you his friend when you do. He's made it possible by dying on the cross for our sins that if we believe in him, he says he will give us the gift of grace and eternal life. He's the substitute for us. He took our penalty of sin. If you've never trusted Jesus, I urge you right now, say, Jesus, would you be my savior? place my faith in you, Jesus. You are the Messiah. You are the King. And I bow my heart and my knee to you right now. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We do honor you today, Jesus, our sovereign King. I pray that as we walk out of this place, Lord, the weight that many have felt be lifted by you because we'll know this God every day even the day after election day you are still on the throne and it's in this good news that we rest and all God's people said Amen